The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us live every Wednesdays, 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time, and at the end of the day, we archive the show, so you can download that and listen to it on your MP3. This morning, I have two guests, two amazing women who have done incredible things and written amazing books. Um, the title of the first book is Mad Women, and the title of the second book is Breasts. So we have Mad Women and Breasts, um, two great titles. Uh, Jane Moss, is an, and she was the Advertising Woman of the Year. Uh, the title of her book is Mad Women, The Other Side of Life on Madison Avenue in the 60s and Beyond. What it was like to be an advertising woman in the 60s and the 70s. That's what we're going to find about uh, that mad women, that mad men, uh, that mad men era of casual sex and professional serfdom. Uh, Jane Moss um, was a designer of the I Love New York campaign, and she describes herself as the mother of the campaign. Apparently, there were a lot of men associated with it, a lot of fathers, but she was the mother of the I Love New York campaign. Um, Jane has been featured on NBC Nightly News, CBS Morning Show, Wall Street Journal. I mean, her book has really taken off, and right now she's on this tour across the country, and I have to say that Jane is 80 years old. So uh, my second guest um, is the author of Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, and uh, she's a journalist, Florence Williams. She writes for Slate and Outside Magazine and the New York Times. I think this is her first book. And uh, as she said, breasts are everywhere from reality TV shows, wardrobe malfunctions, doctor's visits, and pink ribboned fundraisers. And in her book, she follows this organ from puberty to pregnancy and explores the environmental issues that impact the health of women around the world. So she'll be our second guest, but right now we have Jane Moss, uh, mad women. And maybe she's a mad woman, I don't know. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Jane. Good morning, Catherine. Good greetings from Oklahoma City. Well, <laughs> greetings. Well, I'm in New York, upstate New York, gray upstate New York. But uh, your book, I have to say, I read the book in, in a day and a half. It was oh, really, thank you. Yeah, it was so much fun. It, you know, it's fun, but it's also serious. So I guess that's going to be my first question. You know, what exactly is Mad Women about? Why did you write it? And, and talk to us about the seriousness of it and also the, you know, the not-so-serious part of the book. Well, Catherine, of, of course, the reason I wrote it, it was inspired by the popularity, the extraordinary popularity of of, of Mad Men, uh, especially when it became known that their their fifth season was going to be postponed by 17 months. And so I started to write this book just about 18 months ago before we knew about the great postponement. Um, and And I really thought it would be a fun book. Uh, I started off with, with 
just that idea in mind, what was it really like? Was there really all that? Were women really treated as second-class citizens? Did people really have three martini lunches? Was there all that sex in the office? And then, Catherine, as I began to interview more and more women, I realized that there was also the serious spine of the book was, was the status of women then and now. Um, well, may I just burble on for a minute? You uh, can. I'll I, <laughs> the chapter, the last chapter of the book, as you know, is called uh, "Have You Really Come Such a Long Way, Baby?" And as I talked to women, particularly women who are working mothers today, uh, where I came out is that we've made some progress, but we have not nearly made the progress that we need to in terms of guilt about working and children and husbands, um, and it's still a big problem. Well, you know, one of the things, and, and actually as a social worker, uh, I was really interested in, in, in just what you're talking about right now because I interview a lot of women, a lot of young women who have careers, and they're always talking about work, balance, children, husband, yes. and they don't seem to, as you say, they, they don't seem to be able to do that. But one of the things that you said in your book, and this is what I want you to address, is that you said that you, you, well, you didn't talk about balance. You talked about prioritizing, that you really made a decision to prioritize career first, husband second, and children third. Yes. And boy, even today, if, if a young woman says that, that's not very popular. It's like, boy, are you being selfish? Are you talking, you know, your children don't come first? So let's talk about that. Well, I, I, I really feel sometimes that when I'm talking to young women and they say, well, how can I do it? How can I juggle it all? And I feel like I'm the wicked witch of the West giving them advice. Uh, I don't think that it's necessary to do what I did. I don't think you have to prioritize that, that, that severely. I just, I always wanted to have a career, and it was just terribly, terribly important to me. And so that became priority one. And my husband was priority two, and I figured the kids were, you know, were were just going to have to manage with what I could give them. And I tried my best, uh, and I'm I'm ridden with guilt about not having given them enough time uh, when when they were young. But uh, if I had it all to do over again, I would. Anyway, my my advice to young women today is that you need to go into having a career, a marriage, and children with your eyes open to the fact that it's going to be very hard and that there are going to be days when you're going to have to tell your little girl you can't come to her ballet recital or tell your little girl you can't come to see her uh, you know, play in the championship soccer game of uh, because because you have to be at the office, and there are also those days when you're going to have to tell your boss uh, that that or your coworkers that you can't be there for the big new business pitch because you've got to be somewhere with your kids. Well, let's uh, get back to the kids. I want to because yes, I think that's obviously you're going to have to not always be able to go to the soccer game or the piano recital or the skating recital. But uh, in your and I think you mentioned this in the book when you went to any one of those activities, it was, there, there weren't any men there. It was the women who were there attending the activities because yes. the men were working and they certainly prioritized. But don't you think, to, comment on this, Jane, because today, even if, if a young woman doesn't go or can't go, she has to be at work, so she can't go to the recital or she can't go to the, you know, the sports tournament. Uh, she has a husband who may go. They, you know, so the, the, I think that has changed somewhat so that it, it, all the onus is not on the woman necessarily although I would agree that I think most of it 
most of the time is. But so that helps to, to make, perhaps to balance the parenting a little bit. I think it helps to balance the parenting, no question. But men have stepped up to being to being fathers. Uh, far more than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, it was unheard of for a man to change a diaper or give a baby a bottle. They just didn't know how to do that, and they wafted through uh, without doing it. And now, of course, they're, they're much more involved in, in the whole child-rearing thing. I don't think that... Uh, I don't think that helps with the guilt that I that I gather mothers continue to feel if they are missing the ballet recital. Uh, if Daddy's there, it's 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 terrific. But if she's not there, she still feels just as guilty. Of course, she's she feels guilty because you know her son or her daughter would are usually upset that mommy can't go. But another piece that she's missing is that she herself hasn't had the opportunity just from her own personal uh, experience as a mother, to be part of that connection with her son or her daughter or her kid. Well, Catherine, I guess, you know, in my wicked witch persona, I say, <laughs> well, that she'll have to, that then you have to make connections in some other way. Then, then you have to do it uh, at bedtime or first thing in the morning or on those rare weekends when you can snatch a whole day away from the office. Um, uh, I... I, 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 I've talked to a lot of psychologists and educators about this whole question because I, I do a lot of, of talks on college campuses and uh, as I know the question that I'm going to get from young women all over the place is how am I going to cope with a marriage, children, and a career? Uh, and I have yet to see a young man on a college campus stand up and ask that question. Uh, and psychologists tell me women are wired differently, that a man will throw money at the problem and say, hire a housekeeper, hire a cook, hire, you know, whatever you need to take care of this problem. Stop, stop whimpering about it. And a woman says, but they're my children and it's my household and I have to, I have to take care of my children. I have to run my household, even if I'm not doing the laundry or scrubbing the floors. Um, and it's it's just a different it's a different wiring. At least that's what I'm learning. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you know, the you know all that estrogen, <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, it does something to us. Yes. And I think yeah, and it affects our behavior. But let's take it from the other side. Do you think that women, and I don't think they are, can be as successful, let's say, as you were, because you your work was a priority, uh, and be in. Uh, well, the advertising business, be a partner in a law firm, be a partner as you know, as a uh, physician in a, in a, a medical practice, uh, or you know, be a CEO of a company because they don't seem to be. And is the reason because they are kind of going back and forth between work and children? You know, Catherine, that's that's a really very very deep question because as I've been traveling now, I've done some thirty or forty. Uh, talks all over the country, mostly at advertising clubs, and I'm seeing that about 80% of the club membership is made up of women, but very, very few of them are heads of big, major uh, advertising agencies. Uh, Women, as always, are entrepreneurial, and I meet a lot of women who have their own small, successful agencies you know the the Jane Moss agency, the Susie Jones agency, yes. uh, but I don't see 
uh, a lot of women at all. I see precious few women who have made it to the top in the in the you know up there up there as a CEO with a bunch of men. Yeah. And they also don't make the same kind of money. You know, you no. talk about we have millionaires, but now we have billionaires. How many billionaires are there? Women, I you know, Sarah Blakely who. Um, who uh, created Spanx, you know, the footless pantyhose. I think she's one of the few I think women. she's one of the very few, yes. Yeah, aside from uh, Oprah. <laughs> Oprah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I have been invited to a conference in San Francisco in September, which is called the 3% Conference, uh, being organized by some women who have discovered that out of all the advertising agencies in the United States, only 3% of the creative directors are women. And so they're having a 3% conference to see if, what, what, what anybody can do about this. But I, I think you're zeroing right in on, on one of the problems. And uh, another thing that I'm seeing is women are starting to drop out of the workforce uh, whether it's advertising or law or medicine, in their 40s, uh, just about the point where they should start that final climb to CEO-dom, uh, and they're, they're, they're throwing it in. Um, and I don't know, some people tell me it's because their husbands have reached the point where they are now so successful they're making enough money so the woman feels she doesn't have to work. But I wonder what that sort of statement makes about her career when she's, you know, she's climbed that far up the ladder and then says, well, that's it. Yeah, and how she can let go of it because, as you and I know, it's not simply how much money you make. I mean, it's related to, as you say, I mean, you've spent 20 years in a career and you've established yourself and you've gained all these skills. And so there's a lot more attached to it than just making money. You bet. You yeah. bet. You, you, in, you invest your heart and soul in it, and uh, it becomes a terribly important part of your life. Jane, so, you say in the book that uh, women are lousy mentors. Um, God, I'm afraid so. I, I wish I wish we were better at it. Um, I I'm concerned still that the more successful women are, the more they kind of look at at younger women struggling their way up and say. Okay, kiddo, I made it. Now let's see how you do. Uh, of course, there are wonderful women mentors. Uh, uh, and and I, I know a lot of women who spend a lot of time and energy and love uh, helping, helping other women. But uh, I think we tend to do it more on a cool professional basis rather than on a, a, a personal heartfelt one-on-one. I mean, for instance, I, I, I see a number of organizations that I work with or belong to who have mentoring days and mentoring weeks, and that's not the same thing. No, it's not the same thing. So what you're saying is that women don't really aren't passionate about it. They don't put their heart into it. They do it because they should. Maybe it's good for them professionally, but it's not necessarily something that they are invested in emotionally exactly. like like men exactly yeah yes you know uh, advertising women of new york elects an advertising woman of the year every year and one of the qualifications is what sort of community activities she's been involved in and mentoring plays a huge part in that and i i see all of these nominations for women of the year and all the nominations have a little thing about what a great mentor this woman has been um, so it's it's a it's a terribly important attribute on your resume. I just don't think we do it uh, 
with 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 heart and soul. Um, so why don't we? Well, is it because we think our positions are so precarious? That yes, I think that's exactly yeah. exactly it, Catherine. I think we're always looking over our shoulders. Uh, men are much better mentors of other young men, and all of my mentors, as I was, you know, clawing my way up, I was going to say climbing up, but it was more clawing. Uh, all of my important mentors were men. Uh, I, I didn't have a single major woman mentor. Well, were there many mentors to be had, if you know what I mean, during the, like the, the 60s, for instance? And who were the men? Who, is, who can, you know, tell us about the, the men who well, were my your mentors? my most important mentor was David Ogilvy, of course, the legendary founder of Ogilvy and Mather, and uh, a, a wonderful uh, understanding uh, and... Uh, a man who really believed that women were equal. However, he wrote in his book, Confessions of an Advertising Man, that whenever two people who worked for him got married, one of them had to leave because he, he, he didn't believe in nepotism. And he said, preferably the, the woman should leave to stay at home and raise her babies. And, of course, his partners, his partners at the agency begged him to take that out of his book. And ultimately, I think by the time it was republished in the late 1970s, he, he deleted that particular phrase. But uh, it, that's the way Ogilvy worked. And in the 60s, when I was there, um, if a woman was pregnant, uh, she had to leave by her fifth month. About the time she began to show and made, and made men in the agency nervous that she might, you know, uh, get upset if they didn't like her copy and they couldn't ask her to go for ice for their drinks anymore. So uh, uh, at most advertising agencies, women simply, um, when you became pregnant, that was the end of your career. There was no maternity leave and bang, you were gone and you were not expected to come back. Yeah, and I think that was true probably for not just advertising agencies. I'm sure it was yeah, true, in, true in most in, businesses in at most that businesses, time. Yes. But, um, you know, when you talk about your mentor, do you think that men, I mean, he was um, very successful himself, obviously, and perhaps wasn't threatened by you. I think the word threat, I think some, you know, men, particularly of that generation in the 60s and 70s, were they were threatened by women. So, you know, that was part of, um, their fear of having you be an equal in the workplace or even be their boss. Yes, I talked to some very brave men uh, who confessed to me that they they were among the first to hire women MBAs and bring them into the agency world as account executives. And uh, two men said uh, to me of two different women they had hired uh, promising uh, ambitious, eager women MBAs who later became their bosses and ultimately fired them, and uh, so that that yeah. that can give a man a man who has has doesn't have an MBA hires a woman who does have one that can be pretty threatening, especially in the sixties, especially you know way back then in the middle ages of the sixties and seventies. Yeah, but even today, I'm thinking, Jane, when you mentioned MBA programs, I mean medical schools are sort of. In this, these aren't the exact statistics, but medical schools are 50-50 men and women, law schools. But heading, MBA heading, programs for heading for 60-40 women to men. Yeah, but yeah. MBA schools, that's not necessarily true. Now, I have a son who went to Wharton, and there, are, there were, and, and not that they don't want women, but there were, and I forgot what the percentage is, much higher in terms of men. And I know that even some of the women's, you know, some of the, the women's 
traditional women's schools that have MBA programs, it's very difficult for them to get them into MBA programs, engineering programs. So all those kinds of traditions still remain. Yes, you know, Catherine, I, I was at my alma mater, Bucknell, just a few weeks ago speaking, and um, I had breakfast with the professors of the School of, of Management, and they told me that there's pretty much an equal split right down the middle, that the men are, are zeroing in on, are focusing on financial stuff, the very hard, hard, rational areas of finance, and women are going into marketing and communications. Uh, and it, it seems that, that it's almost a 50-50 split. Well, it gets uh, back to what we were talking about before. It's that yes, whole absolutely. maybe estrogen and testosterone. Yes, the difference. absolutely. Yeah. I have enough. We, we only have a few minutes left, so I just want to ask you this question because, I mean, you know, your book is about, it is about discrimination and in the 60s and business and advertising. But what about today? You're 80 years old and you've just written a book and you're going across the country, uh, you know, going on your tours and you, as you say, you speak to colleges around the country about this topic. Do you find age discrimination a problem, particularly with women, because I've talked to a lot of women over 70, 75 years old, and this seems to be a new issue because women are living longer, they're out there doing things, they're involved, Uh, and now this whole issue of age discrimination in women. (laughs) I, I... Uh, I find that people, uh, for instance, I'm, I'm, in, I, I'm in and out of airports like three times a day, and people say to me, Are, would you like a wheelchair? Would you like a wheelchair, madam? And I say, no, thank you, I'm going to jog. Yeah. Uh, and that's a form of age discrimination. I think although people are trying to be kind, um, and yes, people, people treat me as though I am 170 as opposed to 80, uh, but then I stand up and talk to them about sex in the office and and uh they they kind of for, they kind of forget to discriminate against me um but sure i think seriously there is definitely a growing uh problem with age discrimination because pe- the younger people don't quite know how to handle us we're 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 not the stereotypical uh, white-haired grandmother who bakes apple pies and stays home and knits anymore uh, well they want to be respectful but sometimes the respectfulness comes across as dismissive. And, yes. uh, you know, they see, uh, and I can, you know, I'm not, I'm not so young either. I'm in that baby boomers, the, you know, the end of the baby boomers, the oldest baby boomers. And uh, I, too, I had a similar experience. I don't know, I, was, I think I was in Borders in New York City. And uh, I asked where something was and what floor it was on. I think it was on the second floor. And she said, but uh, you can take the elevator. <laughs> yes, and the I hear that. There, and I'm thinking, I, I hear that all the stairs. time. Yeah. Yes. But I find, and perhaps you're stronger than I am, or you have a better attitude, over time, that kind of dismissive quality uh, has it impacts on one. Yes, when you get up and give a lecture and you talk and you prove yourself and, you know, here's this engaging, brilliant woman. Okay, but that's just a certain group of people that you're addressing. But just when you're out there, when you're in the grocery store, when you're, you know, in the shopping mall, when you're just kind of out in public and those things continue to happen, I think they they affect women in a very negative way. And, and that maybe, I don't know what we can do about it, but perhaps you'd be the person to do something about it. 
Well, well, Catherine, I think it starts with parenting, doesn't it? It starts yes. with, with how parents' uh, uh, own behavior impacts their children and what, what they, how they bring their children up to react to, to, to uh, older people in their family, older people in society. Uh, we're probably doing a lousy job of it, probably because mothers are out there working and don't have time to talk to their kids about it. Uh, you know, it's 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 a problem. Um, when I step onto any New York subway, because I live in New York, so I'm on subways all the time. Uh, people, people, young and uh, people, men and women of all of all you know ethnic backgrounds stand up for me and give me their seat, and I unfailingly say thank you so much and sit down in it because I think that kind of very gracious behavior should be should be um, accepted and and uh, and and you should be grateful for it the people who never stand up for me are the teenagers and I just wonder about their 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 bringing up where are their heads you know would you ever say something uh <laughs> No, because I I'm not confrontational. I'm 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 little and tough, but I'm not confrontational. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in the subway, and a el- very elderly gentleman came in who was using um, a crutch, uh, and the, the three teenagers were having an animated conversation, and he stood, you know, swaying right in front of them, and I got up pointedly and gave him my seat. And the woman across from us said, why don't you let those little girls stand up? And I said, but they haven't offered to, have they? So, and they never did. You're the one who stood did. up. No. And they never did. Well, that says something about our teenagers. Yes, being polite and being respectful, and I think that's the example that you're giving. But um, I want, we have about a couple minutes left, so I want to men- mention the book, obviously, again, Mad Women, The Other Side of Life on Madison Avenue in the 60s and Beyond, Jane Moss. You can buy the book. I bought mine at Borders, the bookstores everywhere, online. And, Jane, do you have a website uh, that we can go to to find out more about the book or maybe even some of the tours, college tours that you're going on? That- you, can, you, can Google simply, you can Google Jane Moss and you'll find out all the, all the tours. And you can go to Macmillan.com, the book publisher uh, website, and they've got everything there. Or uh, you can certainly go to Mad Women on Facebook and find out all about it. So I'm everywhere. And Catherine, we've been talking so seriously. I just wanted to say I thank you for enjoying the book. And you know, I think there's a lot of fun in it. The chapters called "Sex in the Office" and the three martini lunch, uh, and get the money before they screw you. And you know, it's 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 uh, a lot of it is 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 pretty rollicking. Um, and and then as we have been discussing this half hour, there is a very serious spine to it. Um, yep. So I. It, it was fun to write, and, uh, and, and a lot of the reviewers are saying that it's an important book, which pleases me no end. Oh, I think it's definitely an important book, and I okay. think you summed it up really well. Yes, we, tend to, we stuck to the serious part, because I did want to pick your brain, but it is. It's a fun book. It's a great book. Um, I could have enjoyed those three martini lunches, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I like martinis, but, yeah, it is a fun book, and it's... Catherine, I'm glad we stuck to the serious side, though, because so many of the... So many uh, interviews uh, just stick to, you know, sex and martinis. And I'm glad we talked about these issues because they really are terribly important and they're not going away. And in many respects, they're getting worse. Yeah, I think so, too. All, in, in some areas, it's definitely getting worse. And, and, and one thing, I, I think I saw one of the interviews you had done uh, on YouTube and a really young 
interviewer, I mean, it seemed we were talking about age, I'm getting back to the age discrimination, yes. but they seemed to be surprised that you were, you know, sex and martinis and almost shocked um, yes. Yes. that, yeah, thinking that perhaps they invented it. That's what my mother always says. She's about your age. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been saying, you know, people say, tell us, a, tell us about mad women, mad men, I'm sorry, tell us about the television show Mad Men, and I, my, my rejoinder is, well, whatever they did, we did better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Jane Moss, so great. It was wonderful talking to you today. I really enjoyed it. I hope our paths cross, Catherine. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, good luck on the tour. Thank you very much. Uh, my next guest is Florence Williams. She's an award-winning journalist as well and a contributor to Outside Magazine. She writes regularly for Slate and the New York Times, and she just published her first book, and the title of the book is Breasts. So Breasts, um, and in her book she follows this organ throughout its life cycle from puberty to the changes it undergoes during pregnancy, breastfeeding, and menopause. Uh, so we're going to be talking to her about breasts. Um, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. And don't forget to download the show at the end of the day because we do archive the show and listen to us every week from 10 to 11 Eastern Time. But right now we're going to take a short break, and uh, we'll be back with uh, Florence in a minute. Don't go away. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward, but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you struggling to find hope in the middle of adversity? How confident are you in dealing with your life challenges? Do you realize you have the ability to overcome your obstacles? You'll want to tune in to Louise Cohen's Changing Obstacles into New Possibilities. Louise will speak to inspiring guests who have helped others or managed to overcome the roadblocks that stood in the way of their life success. Louise Cohen's Changing Obstacles into New Possibilities broadcasts live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning, my second guest is Florence Williams. She's author of Breaths, A Natural and Unnatural History, 
And again, she is a journalist and contributor to Outside Magazine. She also writes regularly for Slate and the New York Times, and I believe this is her first book. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Florence. Hello. Good morning. Nice to be here. It's a great title, Breasts. I got... <laughs> I, I got a lot of responses when uh, when and when uh, my listeners found out that I was going to be interview, interviewing you because um, breasts and natural and unnatural history. I think it's a fascinating book. It's a great book, and I had read a lot of those Mary Roach books, which you are compared to her. Uh, I guess in some of um, uh, some of the editorials that I had read. But let's talk about breasts and natural and unnatural. Um, Why did you write the book? Good question. <laughs> I, I originally got interested in this topic uh, after my second child was born, and I was breastfeeding her, and I uh, saw some research that toxic chemicals were showing up in breast milk, and that concerned me. Uh, and I also thought it would be an interesting story to tell um, in a journalistic way if I tested my own breast milk. So that's what I did. I, I sent a sample of my breast milk. Um, I, I FedExed it to a lab in Germany, and they analyzed it, and um, all sorts of weird things showed up in my breast milk. For example, uh, flame retardants, um, pesticides, uh, a, a jet fuel ingredient <laughs> called perchlorate. And that really launched me down this path of how modern life is really changing our breasts and what it means for our breasts and for our health. So what you say, and I, and I, this is, uh, I guess that breasts are a lightning rod to, for us to examine environmental issues that impact our health. You know, I'm, I'm quoting you, but uh, and because we live in this toxic environment, and um, our breasts, I guess, reflect that toxic environment that we live in, the air we breathe, the food we eat, um, kind of like in a toxic sewer. It's kind of, it's very scary. I mean, um, one of the things that you said in the book that American women, or women living in the United States, have the highest degree of toxicity in their breasts, even more so than European women? Well, for some of these substances, that's true. For example, the flame retardants. Um, in California passed um, a flame, flame retardant law uh, in the 1970s requiring that all home furnishings be doused with flame retardants in order to... Um, the idea was to help save lives, although it's since been proven that that, that really, um, there's no evidence that these flame retardants do save lives. But anyway, as a result of the law, virtually all the furniture sort of made and sold in the United States um, is filled with flame retardants. And so it's all over our homes and our offices in upholstered furniture. Flame retardants are also found in computer equipment, um, in electronics, in um, a lot of office equipment. I have two home offices in my house, and uh, these, these flame retardants, actually, they get into our dust. <laughs> and I don't know if my dust is, if my house is dustier than other people's houses, but, but I did end up with these slightly above-average American levels for flame retardants in my breast milk. Now, the flame retardants that we tested for have actually been phased out of production, and, and part of the reason for that is because um, mothers were so concerned, you know, that this stuff was showing up in breast milk. I think, you know, when, when breast milk speaks, you know, sort of people listen, and that's also partly why some, some other things got banned. For example, PCBs and DDT um, were banned in the 70s, also partly because they were showing up in breast milk. But the, the irony is that although these, this particular class of flame retardants is being phased out, I describe it sort of like um, hydra. You know, once you cut off one head, ten more grow back. And, and the flame retardant industry has jumped in to fill the void with lots of new flame retardants, which, like the previous flame retardants, have never been tested for human health effects. 
Well, Florence, in your book, you talk about breast cancer, of course, which is, you know, first and foremost on, you know, most American women uh, on their minds because uh, I guess we have the highest incidence of breast cancer also worldwide or globally. Um, and we very seldom, or it's not talked about, I think it's just beginning to be talked about, and you did in the book, that, you know, environmental carcinogens can be one of the causes of breast cancer. We kind of tend to blame the victim, like if you don't smoke and if you don't drink too much alcohol and, you know, do you have a history of breast cancer in the family, all of those contribute, and I'm not saying they don't, but uh, to breast cancer, but what about these environmental carcinogens? This is a huge topic, I think, that is just beginning to be addressed. It is. It's a huge topic. It's really a huge question mark. And you're right. I think women often are made to feel sort of guilty that, that maybe they did something wrong. They ate too much fat. They didn't exercise enough. But really all of those known risk factors for breast cancer, including diet, family history, smoking, those only account for half of all breast cancers. So we really don't know what's, what's causing, causing the rest. Um, you know, it's probably something in the environment. We know that in lab animals, um, 216 commercial chemicals do cause mammary gland tumors. It's very hard to prove this, actually, in humans because we're all exposed to so many chemicals. It's hard to sort of isolate them. Um, but, but one thing I talk about in my book is that we are, we are beginning to look harder at this. More of the breast cancer activists are, are um, you know, demanding it. We, we want to pre- be able to prevent breast cancer if possible because we do see a rise in breast cancer, um, and globally breast cancer is expected to rise 20% just by 2020, which is coming right up. In fact, it's doubled globally um, just in the last 20 years. So I think it is on everyone's mind. Um, we are seeing more science in this area but, but it is tricky to do the science. There's no question. Well, you do mention also in the book, there's like, there is a, is it a group of women in Brazil who virtually have no have breast cancer? Yeah, there are some anthropologists who, you know, sometimes they find these really isolated yeah. pockets of humans who seem to have no breast cancer. Um, and and their, you know, their lives are so different from ours in so many ways. Um, you know, they have lots of children and they have them early in life. So their reproductive factors are totally different. Um, you know, they don't, um, they, they don't stay inside. So they're outside getting a lot of vitamin D. Um, you know, I, I joke that they don't wear underwire bras, which, you know, some people claim, um, you know, might be a risk factor here, although it's been debunked. Uh, really, your bras are fine. Uh, but but oh, let's not, why would underwire bras be a risk factor? You know, it's just one of those myths that's out there. Uh, you know, there are so many, there's, people have so many, um, um, you know, just funny notions of, of what might cause breast cancer. But I think some people think that if you, if you, if you constrict somehow, you limit the, the flow of, of blood in the breast, you know, that might cause a problem. But that's never been proven. So I think your underwires are okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm sure you allayed a lot of ladies' fears. <laughs> yeah, keep wearing your underwires, ladies. Yeah, keep wearing your underwires. <laughs> Especially as you get older and the aging population, they're right, really we necessary. Need those <laughs> yeah, um, but breasts breasts are more. We, we didn't actually say this, but breasts are more sensitive to chemicals than other organs because they have it's that fatty tissue in the breast, right? Lots well, there, of cells. Are, there are yeah. yeah, there are many organs in the body that that are sensitive to chemicals. For example, um, you know the liver and the kidney and the brain. But um, we know that breasts are vulnerable um, to many of these chemicals because our breasts are so fatty, and a lot of the chemicals are fat-loving. 
Um, we also know that breasts are really responsive to um, hormones. For example, when, when women take contraception, when they take birth control pills or when they take um, hormone replacement therapy, their breasts respond to those hormones and they change. The breasts get bigger and they get denser. <laughs> and we also know that breasts are really responsive to our diets. For example, um, breasts are getting bigger in, in the United States. Cup sizes are getting bigger, and the reason for that is really that um, we're getting fatter, unfortunately. <laughs> our diets are such that many parts of our bodies are getting bigger, and a lot of women do gain weight in their breasts. So in that sense, you know, breasts are just this really visible kind of signifier for these changes that are going on, um, you know, in, in our bodies overall. Yeah, well, you say the breasts are getting bigger. The average American size is a 36C, and a generation ago it was a 34B. You know, when I look around, it seems even a 36C is smaller as women are getting heavier and fatter and obese. That the, yeah, the huge breasts, I mean, um, yeah. yeah, and so, but there's a lot of politics surrounding breasts. And, I, you know, and you address this in the book, um, the whole issue of hormone replacement therapy. And um, that seems that that was quite a sham. Um, let's talk about that because you spend a lot of time in the book, and I think it's an important topic. Women really have to question, you know, the kind of medical care they get that involves their breasts, uh, mammograms, HRT. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I certainly during the 1970s and 80s, hormone replacement therapy was touted as this kind of miracle um, you know, a wonder drug that would make you young and beautiful and smart forever. And there were many doctors who were just prescribing it to everyone um, past the age of menopause. Um, of course, now we know that, that there are risks associated with hormone replacement therapy. It's actually one of the stronger risk factors for cancer. Although in absolute numbers, you know, it's not, it's not really um, that dramatic. Uh, I think it's, if you take hormone replacement therapy, you know, it, it amounts to a sort of an extra two or three breast cancers in a population of 10,000. So in those numbers, it's pretty small, although it's still one of the stronger risk factors we know about for breast cancer because there's so many we don't know about. So it's one of those decisions that a woman really has to make very carefully with her doctor, and I think she has to really consider um, how badly she needs the hormone replacement therapy. You know, some women experience stronger um, symptoms of menopause than others, and it also depends on her particular um, her particular risk profile, if she has a strong family history of breast cancer, you know, probably not such a good idea. Yeah, well, I think you mentioned that's really important because you have to sit down and you're, each individual is unique, each woman, her risk factors are different, but I think that the tendency is, is not to see women, at least in my experience, as being unique. They, it's sort of one drug fits all, and I remember having a probably about 10 or maybe even 12, 15 years ago, uh, an argument with my gynecologist, a woman, uh, about the, I said I wasn't going to take HRT. I don't, I don't need it. I don't, my symptoms for, you know, premenopausal, uh, menopause are really not, I can handle them. I don't really need to be medicated. But she was insisting because this was kind of the protocol. And you, right. I had to be really strong about saying no, and we got in a real argument about this. Well, I'm glad I didn't, and, and it's over. And, uh, but I, there, I don't think that, you know, we kind of give lip service. to You have to kind of assess your own risks. And, but I don't, I'm not sure that the medical community does that. No, I, you know, I hope it's changing a little bit. But certainly, you know, the history in the medical establishment and in the pharmaceutical industry has been to just prescribe these things to everyone because it's easier and it's way more profitable if you can target the entire gender <laughs> for a drug, you know, you're going to make a lot of money. 
Um, so, but, but I think things are changing. We're now kind of entering the era of personalized medicine. Um, you know, pretty soon we'll, we'll understand more of our genetic profiles. Um, we, we do know that there are some um, genetic, genetic factors to breast cancer. We're starting to understand those more, although those tests are extremely expensive. Um, the breast cancer gene has actually been patented by a private company, and that company charges $3,000 um, to get a genetic test. So most insurance companies are not going to pay for that unless you have a first-degree relative, like a mother or a sister who has breast so cancer. So it's, it's not really available. I mean, it's not available because how many people are going to pay $3,000 for a test? Right. It's, it's not accessible for most it's women. It's not accessible Absolutely for most. true. So that's why I think women have to understand how their bodies work. They have to, um, I think, pay attention and try to learn more about their breasts because, because we do have to make these decisions for ourselves. And I think it's great that you're out there talking about the fact that you survive menopause, you know, without <laughs> having to take anything because I think we all need to hear more of that. We need to hear more voices. Well, I think what you said in the book, and it just sort of hit home with me, I mean, uh, any medication that's applied, first of all, it's a natural process. And then when you start giving drugs to all women, going through menopause, it doesn't make sense. Yes, and I think I forgot the exact statistic that you mentioned in the book, but let's say 15% of women have horrendous, horrendous kinds of uh, symptoms related to menopause, you know, night sweats, day sweats, uh, you know, you can go on. And they, they need it. It's good. It's good to have that drug available. But when you start prescribing stuff for everybody, it seems it's like a, you know, the drug companies are just making a ton of, would you say, $2 billion on, on HRT? Yeah, with a two billion a, a year, it's been a huge, huge industry. Uh, it's just incredible, and uh, you know there are there are a lot of other drugs out there, you know that that are given to huge populations, you know, without necessarily looking at specific individual risk factors. Do you think um, women are targets more than men? Do you think men, if they told, I mean, I, I, I mean, you are the expert, so I'm going to ask you this question. You've done a lot of research. Do you think if they told men that they need to take a, a drug like HRT, so they wouldn't get, you know, and uh, they would, or they, you know, they w- wouldn't get prostate cancer or something related to their sexual organs that they would do it? You know, I think that's a great question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I know <laughs> that, um, you know, doctors often um, are sort of um, paternalistic in their attitudes toward women, and they've been telling them what to do for a long, long time. Um, so, I, you know, I think it is, some, it is kind of a feminist issue in terms of the medicalization of, you know, these sort of normal women's lifestyle changes and, and, and phys- physiological changes. I mean, menopause is not a disease, right? It's this totally normal process that everyone goes through, and a lot of women get through it just fine. But I think the attitude is that it is a disease, and that's sort of promoted by the, the big drug companies, and, you know, you, it's, it's, that it's not a natural process, and we don't see it as a natural process, unfortunately, um, because I think your attitude has a lot to do with how you go through it. Right. And the alternatives to medication that, that that are available, but you know, you you mentioned the word personalized medicine. It's difficult to have, and I think that's you know, is the direction we're going in, and I think that's a good direction, a good trend. But hard to have personalized medicine when you have 15 minutes with your physician, exactly. Um, who, so I I don't quite know how that's going to play out, in in you know, in terms of practical. Exactly, and unfortunately, yeah. when you look at breast cancer. There are still a lot of injustices um, in terms of who's treated well and who isn't. Um, you know, the biggest predictor of, of death from breast cancer um, is really uh, not necessarily what kind of cancer you have or um, what your particular profile is, but it's whether or not you have good health insurance. 
So um, the, the best way to cure cancer really is to, um, to make sure more Americans have really good health coverage. Um, so, so you're the, saying it's, it, it is, has a lot to do with socioeconomic issues. Not it really does. Yeah. It's, a kind of a, it's a social issue in this country as much as it is a, a medical issue or a science issue. So what you mentioned in the beginning of the interview, you were talking about that there were you, the carcinogens in your breast and you're nursing your baby. I assume you kept nursing. I did keep nursing, and that's a really important point. There seems to be still a very widespread consensus, um, public health officials, that breast milk, the benefits of breast milk still far outweigh the risks. And it's important to point out that, of course, even formula um, is not perfect. Formula also has contaminants in it. Um, it's not a pure product either. In fact, it, it's been known to have um, heavy metals in it. And um, it really, it, it, it depends on the water that you use to mix formula, but certainly a lot of pesticides are going to get into your formula if you're using kind of um, agricultural water supplies or many of the water supplies in the country. Um, and I also think it's important to point out that for an infant, a lot of their toxic exposures come not from breast milk but from the womb. Many of the mother's chemicals are passed down um, across the placenta. So um, I don't want to just blame breast milk for this. I just think that breast milk is kind of a symbol. It's one that's pretty easy to test. It's not so easy to test um, umbilical cord fluid. Yeah, um, I think, um, you know, and I think there are studies going on at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Uh, Dr. Philip Landergan is doing a lot with that. I think that, there, you know, um, the big research study involved in, in all of the, the toxic chemicals that... Uh, that babies get in utero, which is That's a right. huge, yeah, which is a huge other problem. It's um, a huge other I want problem. you to know, and this is even before reading your book. I mean, I breastfed all three of my boys for about a year and a half, each one of them, and but I didn't get a lot of support. And I think this is another point that that, that you bring up in the book. I mean, it was my mother and my mother-in-law. Well. Why you you know it's enough you've, you've you know three months that's enough time to give it up but why well, um, we've, we've gone through a few generations in this country where breastfeeding was very unpopular um, and again I think a part of it is because of the role of doctors um, who really um, don't know that much about lactation they're not taught a lot about lactation in medical schools the formula companies um, have been um, you know very powerful and clever about um, supplying women with free formula when they're in the hospital, for example. Um, and so uh, for, for a lot of women, breastfeeding is not well supported. It's also difficult. I don't know if you had problems, but it took me a long time to figure out breastfeeding. You know, it was painful. I wasn't doing it right. I thought it was something that was really natural and that my baby and I would figure out. But it turns out that it's really something that you have to learn how to do. And yeah, so any now, woman I think has a different. Now, I, you were taught you had some really physical, painful experience. With, I did. You know, yeah, I didn't have that, but I—I I mean, that was—I didn't have anything in terms of the physical problems. But what I started doing because the doctor is telling me, well, if you're going to breastfeed the baby, and this is my first one, by the third I learned totally different. But the first one, it was like you have to do 20 minutes on one side and 20 minutes on another side. So you, mm-hmm. start to t- you talk about making some experience that is just so fantastic, emotional. You've got all those great natural hormones that are released and you feel so good. And I have a clock. You know, I, if it's, I was afraid that if I did 21 <laughs> minutes on one side that, you know, my baby wasn't going to get enough to eat or too much to eat. Oh, that's terrible. It was terrible. But I didn't have the confidence, as you say, and the support, and I really, but after what, so that's what I did with the first one. By the time I had the third one, he only liked one breast, <laughs> and I let him have it. <laughs> I said, go for it. So I walked around with one huge breast and one little <laughs> tiny breast. 
So you were a little lopsided for a I while. I was lopsided, <laughs> but I had a lot more confidence. And, uh, right. But, it, yeah, it took a lot of experience. I mean, you shouldn't it have to does. go yeah, to be able I think, to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's been, again, it's been kind of... Um, you know, medicalized. And I know my, when my mother was breastfeeding me, she had to keep a nursing journal, and she was supposed to record exactly how many minutes on each side. And the doctors would sometimes weigh the baby before a feed and weigh them after a feed, and everyone would get very anxious that the baby wasn't getting enough to eat. And this, of course, made the mothers anxious. And then, you know, the more anxious you are, the harder it is to really produce a lot of breast milk. Yeah, I mean, it's vicious so difficult. And, and then this is another thing that I said, because I am an intelligent woman, and I began to think, you know, I think women in developing countries are not sitting there with a clock. Right, exactly. You know, they're nursing their babies. <laughs> they're healthy. They grow up. They, you know, it's and uh, you know, breast, and they've been doing this for thousands of years. So uh, that kind of, you know, sort of hit me at one point, and I thought, so this doesn't right. really make sense. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But I also, you know, I think it's important not to make women feel badly about their choices. You know, I think if some women, um, you know, just find it too hard to breastfeed, you know, I think I think we should support that also. Certainly, um, most women have to work, and the reality is um, breastfeeding is not so easy when you have to work. Breastfeeding is not well supported in the workplace. You know, women are not given long maternity leaves. Sometimes there isn't a private room for a woman to pump. Sometimes there isn't an electrical outlet where they need it. You know, just little things like that that, that really add up and... and make it hard to do. But it's unfortunate because we're also learning more and more about the amazing sort of miraculous substances in breast milk that, that don't just feed the baby, but now we're learning more about how they support the immune system of the baby. And in fact, there are some biotech companies that are looking um, so hard at breast milk because they actually want to synthesize some of the immune components of breast milk and um, market them as products for adults. <laughs> and also, you're talking about you know, the immune system, but isn't it and I don't know if this is proven, I know you discuss this in the book as well, but um, that women who nurse or breastfeed for a certain period of time have less of an incidence of breast cancer. Um, they do, yes. Mm-hmm. Breastfeeding is not only good for the baby, it's actually good for the mother um, in ways that we're just starting to learn. Um, for example, um, you know, women, we all, we've always known that uh, breastfeeding helps a woman lose weight, um, but, but it, it seemed like that, that, difference wasn't so long-term, you know, eventually it kind of, you know, equaled, equalized out. But then we learned that actually the type of fat that women are losing while they breastfeed, um, it's the bad kind of fat. It's, it's the lipids that lead to, you know, arterial sclerosis and um, increased heart, heart, heart risk, heart disease risk. And so, so we have to also look at these little things like the types of fat that women are losing really beneficial to women to breastfeed in terms of their heart disease profile later on, and, and this benefit lasts for decades. So we can't fool Mother Nature. <laughs> right, that's true. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> it's hard to do. Yeah, it's hard to do. There's a reason for it. There's a reason we have these breasts. And, of course, you also get into the book, and we, you know, we just touched on a few things because I, I love the book, by the way, Thank Breasts, you. A Natural and Unnatural History, and, and we're talking to the author, Florence Williams. Um, couple more minutes. We can buy the book bookstores everywhere online. And uh, what about um, website? Uh, you have a website, FlorenceWilliams.com? Yes. Yes. And the book is published by Norton, www.norton.com. And there's also information there. Um, right. The book is available um, wherever books are sold. And there's also an electronic version if you have an i-reader or an e-reader. And um, there's also an audio version. There's no reason not to read the book. <laughs> there are no excuses. Anyway, great talking to you today, Florence. Thank you so much for your interest. 
Yeah, thanks so much for being on the show. Florence Williams, author of Breath, A Natural and Unnatural History. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesday live, 10 to 11 Eastern. Have a great week. Hope you enjoyed the morning, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.